This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads here on WGVU. For the better part of 2,000 years, belief in a literal historical resurrection of Jesus was considered mandatory for membership in the Christian community. Rolling on the tape and three seconds. Three, two. Hello, I'm Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads here on WGVU. For the better part of 2,000 years, belief in a literal historical resurrection of Jesus was considered mandatory for membership in the Christian community. While many other dogmas and rituals were debated, the words, He is risen, were pretty much sacrosanct. However, over the past generation, a new breed of theologians and adherents has asked the question, can this part of the gospel be taken as metaphor or allegory by a sincere communicant without becoming an excommunicant? In the recently released book, The Resurrection of Jesus, one will find perhaps the most intelligent dialogue and debate on this issue that exists today. The book features a vigorous yet respectful conversation between progressive theologian J. Dominic Crossan and noted traditionalist Bishop N.T. Wright. Also included in this book are essays from other noted clergy and academics. Today on Common Threads, we have one of the dialogue participants, Professor John Dominic Crossan. While some might suspect that having only one side of the debate represented would tip the scales a bit, we have every confidence that Professor Crossan will give due diligence to his opposition. A word about our guest, John Dominic Crossan, is Emeritus Professor of Religious Studies at DePaul University in Chicago. His most important books are The Historical Jesus, The Life of a Mediterranean Jewish Peasant, The Birth of Christianity, and In Search of Paul, How Jesus' Apostle Opposed Rome's Empire with God's Kingdom. His work has been translated into 10 foreign languages, and he's also a part of the Jesus Seminar. So we welcome to Common Threads, John Dominic Crossan. Hello, Professor. It's a pleasure to be with you, Fred. Well, thank you. Um, my first question is probably um, uh, something that I mentioned in my introduction, and that is I, I mentioned that for the most of 2,000 years, to be a Christian... You wouldn't ask a Christian, a professed Christian, do you believe in the resurrection? If they're a Christian, it's self-evident they believe in the resurrection. Has there been any time in ancient history where the question of the resurrection's literal, uh, uh, the, the literal event versus the metaphor, is there any time that it's come up before within the Orthodox Christian community, Orthodox with a small o, well, you've more or less put your finger on the two points there. To, to ask the question, do you believe in the resurrection, I would say a Christian, and I would say today, must answer yes. But that does not tell me what it means. For example, 
you could also say Jesus is the Lamb of God, but most people do not really think that that means that Mary had a little lamb. They recognize a metaphor when they hear it. And when they listen to some of the stories of Jesus, they recognize a parable when they hear it. So if you were to ask, do you believe in the parables of Jesus, my answer would have to be yes. If you ask me, do I believe in the Good Samaritan parable, my answer is yes. To be a Christian, do you must believe in the Good Samaritan parable? Yes. This is how you handle your enemy in the ditch. But that does not tell me whether it is to be taken literally or metaphorically, which is something, I think, which we really pressed only after the Enlightenment. And I think in a pre-Enlightenment world, such as the first century, there was far more latitude to say that something really meant something without asking precisely that question. Now, are we talking literally? Are we talking metaphorically? So that is the heart of the problem. So in the first century, uh, if one was to question the historical resurrection, one would be considered a heretic. Am I correct? That's something I would say we don't know. Let me try and go out from resurrection into the the wider Roman world for just a second. On the coins of Rome, you were told that Jesus, say, was the Son of God. Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, say Augustus. <laughs> that Augustus was the Son of God. We hadn't, Christianity didn't have its coins yet. You would also have heard the story that Caesar Augustus's spirit had been seen. I said Caesar Augustus, I'm kidding. Julius Caesar's spirit was seen ascending into heaven. Now, if you ask, around the Roman Empire, or even ask modern classicists, what percentage of the Roman Empire took that literally, and what percentage took it metaphorically, we would have to concede we don't have a clue. But if you ask the more wider question, what percentage took it programmatically and, and functionally and said in effect, well, we're getting with the system, we're support, supporting the Roman Empire, and Julius Caesar is in heaven protecting it, then the answer would have to be millions. So. It's much easier to see belief in action and to know that people are believing it in a pre-enlightenment world, not by asking the question literal or metaphorical, which probably they will simply say, yeah, real. Okay, okay. But the, 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 the point I'm making is that when you say something is a metaphor, you're not saying it's cotton wool or Irish stew or porridge. You're saying it has a meaning. So to say, for example that Caesar was divine meant that he was he had the right to rule the world the way he wanted by the will of heaven shall we say by the will of the gods so it's the metaphor means something it's it's not just anything you want it to mean and sure, that's my point sure. that a Christian must believe in the meaning sure uh, uh, people who uh, are, are strongly in favor of an understanding that the resurrection was as historical as, say, the George Washington presidency, often like to say that uh, uh, the other side, if you will, the more liberal understanding is, uh, they would say, you, well, you think it's a fairy tale, but you, you wouldn't use the word fairy tale to describe the resurrection if it even if it didn't happen literally and historically, correct? No, absolutely not. And one of the ways that I, I watch is the terms that are used of what I'm saying that I would never use 
are clearly not my language, so there must be projections of the other side. The other side must be terrified that maybe it is just a fairy tale. But I would say, for example, for as I said, for millions of people in the Roman Empire, the divinity of Caesar was, was sort of self-evident. If you didn't believe in it, what it meant was you were probably a Republican, maybe planning to assassinate him. But to believe in it was a functional phenomenon. It was a question of how you were going to live your life. Tell us a bit uh, about how this book came about. Uh, uh, you and Bishop Wright, you, 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 who brought you together, and what was your intent? It, it's a rather fascinating story because the venue for the the dialogue we we were we were not calling it a debate, and that was not what it was supposed to be. Was that a lay person in uh, Louisiana, in New Orleans, had funded a a series of point-counterpoint dialogues at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in New Orleans, and we were to be the first, the inaugural discussion. And the purpose of it, as it said, was to bring forward a prominent evangelical and a prominent non-evangelical, though I conceded that I would not consider myself a non-evangelical if the word E has a small, a small letter at least, that I spent my life on the Gospels, but in any case, the, to discuss something that was very important. And the inaugural lecture of the, the dialogue was to be on the resurrection. And Tom, of course, had written a large book of almost 700 pages on it. So I prepared, a, you know, not 700 pages, but at least a much longer paper than I knew, I knew I'd have time to read out of respect for the amount of work he had done, and that was passed out ahead of time. It's the appendix of the book, actually. But then what we did in the actual discussion was he spoke for half an hour, let's say, and 20 minutes, I think it was, and summarized his position. I did 20 minutes, and then we took 20 minutes actually in dialogue. And by that I mean not making, you know, like you have in a debate, frozen-faced comments, ignoring the other person, but with a microphone in our hand facing one another and talked. And you can still see that very colloquial nature of that in the, the record itself. And then at the end, there was half an hour's questions from the audience. And at the end, I should tell you, because this may not appear in the book, that we, and I think it's we, were given a standing ovation. And I don't think it was so much because anyone agreed with, <laughs> with me over Tom or anything else. I think it was because of a certain graciousness and respect, and the nature of the dialogue, that Christians could disagree on something which both of us agreed was the heart of Christianity, and what we were trying to do was insist on the meaning of it, without stopping and aborting the whole conversation with, well, you don't take it metaphorically, I take it metaphorically, so end the conversation. Yeah, there's very much one can pick up, uh, an informality about it, uh, it is an exchange of two divergent ideas, so in that way I could understand why someone would call it a debate, but it is more of a dialogue, more of a, of a conversation between uh, two people who seem to be friends. Well, it was, and who respect one another. And part of what I said, I just talk about my own presentation for a moment, I said that what I wanted to do in this dialogue is not raise issues of historicity, 
my opinion on all of that is out there and Tom knows it as well as I do and we could have I think basically wasted the audience's time arguing for example whether the finding of the empty tomb is an historical event or is a parable we could have argued on that and I said what I wanted to try and do is if you took it metaphorically what did it mean and what would it have meant for people in the first century who had no problem with miracles, by the way, who believed in miracles far more than we do. They even believed in pagan miracles, which we usually don't. I'm talking about Christians. So in a world of miracles, when you claim something that even sounds like a, a really wow miracle, the proper pagan response from an open-minded, pious pagan is sort of, well, so what? It's not, I don't believe your story about Jesus. Tell me why I should care. I live in a world where miracles can happen. I'm talking now in the pre-enlightenment first century world. So tell me why your miracle interests me. Why is your Jesus up in heaven, even if you say bodily, better or different than Julius Caesar up in heaven? Tell me why I should care. And certainly, even today, in, in the most conservative churches, uh, metaphor is used for the entire life of Jesus. Uh, you take any story in the gospel and then you say, okay, how do we apply it to today? How do we apply this to me? So the, the concept of, uh, for many people, I would imagine, is both metaphor and historical. Yeah, it's a dialectic between them. I mean, for example, there is no question for me, speaking historically, that say Jesus was crucified. A Roman soldier or a, a pro-Roman soldier looking at that and a Christian believer looking at that, looking at the same phenomenon, if you want to put it from an external gaze, come with totally different meanings. For the Roman soldier, it's, you know, one more, one more rebel put, got out of the way, a good day's work for Roman law and order. And for a Christian believer, it's the salvific death of the Son of God. And those are faith interpretations. And I am certainly on the second side of that faith interpretation. But I recognize that all the camera work in the world, if we had it there, the best high-resolution photography would not give me that meaning. That has to come from faith. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads here on WGVU Radio. I'm Fred Stella. And my guest today is John Dominic Crossan, and he is a contributor to the book, The Resurrection of Jesus. Now, when uh, Bishop Wright speaks in this dialogue, he focuses on one thing that I would imagine a lot of people who are listening to us right now are thinking. Yes, but if it was purely metaphorical and not absolutely historical, that uh, Jesus rose on Easter. How do you explain the rise of early Christianity? How do you explain the entire book of Acts and, and what inspired them? What inspired the remaining apostles to be martyred and, and the other early Christians to, to give their lives, not, not necessarily just to death, but to give their lives to a whole new kind of life if they did not believe that Jesus truly was resurrected historically? Well, I can only begin with myself. I take it metaphorically, and if I had to die for it, and I have no particular desire to do it, I would. And I think, I don't think literal or metaphorical is the, is the point. If, 
if the issue, if somebody phrased the issue, say if a persecutor phrased the issue in the same way as they chose, say, pork as the eating pork or not eating pork as a test for the Maccabean martyrs, if somebody said to you, if you're a Christian, do you believe Jesus is the Lamb of God? Let's say they chose that. As a Christian, I have only one answer, yes. No, not for a minute, thinking that we're dealing with mutton, to put it bluntly. But yes, that is one way of saying the meaning. Jesus is the Word of God, is equally valid as far as I'm concerned. Jesus is the, the Son of God. Those are metaphorical ways of expressing the uniqueness in which God appears to me as a Christian through Jesus. There are multiple ways of saying it. The, Paul says the image of God, which I is equally good. I wouldn't mind say which is better, which is worse. So in one sense, there's only one thing you can die for, and that's for a metaphor. When people die for their country, they're not dying for a piece of blank real estate, as it were. Or if I were to tell you I don't believe in America, you would know immediately, I'm not saying it by the way, if I were to say that, you would know immediately I'm not denying a land mass between Canada and Mexico exists. I'm saying I no longer think it's the land of the free, the home of the brave, the hope of the world, something like that. You'd have to say, well, what, what do you mean by America? What are you seeing it as? So we live by metaphor. <laughs> the trouble is we get so used to it, we don't know. But I, I gather from reading your conversation that both you and Dr. Wright agree that the apostles believed in the actual bodily resurrection. That, that's what I get from the book, and please pr- correct me if I'm wrong. No, as clearly as I could say in the book, I said that I take it metaphorically, and Tom, Tom's argument, if I could summarize him, is this. First of all, he spends half the book, and I'm in complete agreement with the first half of the book, explaining clearly how resurrection, the, um, by resurrection I mean the general bodily resurrection, how it arose within Jewish tradition, and what it meant, and what was at stake. And we're in complete agreement on that. As far as the interpretation is, the general bodily resurrection was the first thing that God had to do when God cleaned up the mess of the world. The fancy theological word is eschatological. God had to eradicate the backlog of injustice in which martyrs had been persecuted in their bodies. We agree with all of that. Now, Tom's question is, what adequate historical explanation, historical, he emphasizes that, so am I, can he give for resurrection faith? Whether it's right or wrong, as it were, he abstracts, what's the adequate um, explanation for it? And the adequate explanation for him is two things. Against that background we were just talking about, they found the empty tomb, and by that he means they found the empty tomb could have photographed them finding it. And there were apparitions of Jesus. Those are the two things that are crucial for him as a historian to explain the rise of resurrection, of faith in the resurrection. I would add one thing even more important, that during his lifetime, Jesus had taught and practiced and incarnated the belief that the kingdom of God was already present on this earth. I think that for me is even more important. But my adequate historical explanation is that Jesus had taught them the kingdom was already here. For those coming out like Paul from a Pharisaic background, 
If the kingdom was already here, then the general resurrection should have begun. Ah, so that's what was the meaning of the risen apparitions of Jesus. It's the beginning of the general resurrection. And I don't think most Christians understand that correctly. It's not just a special privilege for Jesus, unique, special, because he's son of God or or anything like that. The claim that Christians are making is the general resurrection, which we all expected at the end of time, has already begun with the resurrection of Jesus. And therefore, therefore, this is the big therefore, we Christians are called by God to lead, and this is the startling teaching of Paul, a resurrected life. You might say, what? And Paul putting back off an inch. He would say, this is the implication. The resurrection has begun, and you're called to lead a resurrected life. And if you want to see what that's like, and how much difficulty Paul has, that's what his letters are filled with. I was going to ask you what you see the great differences between uh, the view of the apostles uh, uh, who were there, who experienced, uh, as the gospel says, the resurrected Jesus, versus the experience of Paul, who only experienced Jesus as a, as a vision, in terms of how they how they would talk about the resurrection. Well, I think. I think it is exactly the same in terms of the risen apparition. I think what Paul has, at least Paul takes for granted, is exactly the same as Peter and Paul, Peter and anyone else has had. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians. Now, if you were to say to Paul, and this would probably put him a little bit on the defensive, oh, Paul, you weren't here in the days that count. You know, you weren't there since John the Baptist all the way up till... The, the ascension, as it were, as Luke might say in the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, when he kind of disqualifies Paul completely from being an apostle by putting the replacement for Judas in. And as far as Luke is concerned, Paul is not an apostle. Apostles are those who were there from the beginning, saw the earthly Jesus, and were witnesses to the resurrection. No, nobody else need apply, as it were. I don't think at all that Paul agrees with that, but I think in terms of the experience of the risen Lord, he would consider that what he has had and what the apostles claim, the other apostles, he would say those who were apostles before me, he would consider it exactly the same. And I think that is, and I would consider that to be an historical fact, that early Christians, many of them, had visions I'm not hallucinations. I'm not talking about that at all. Visions are a normal part of human religion. It's one of the things that's hardwired into our brain, as far as I'm concerned, as a possibility like dreaming. It's an altered state of consciousness. And I take it for granted that Paul and other people before him had visions of Jesus. But I would insist that it doesn't make any sense speak of resurrection, if that was all you had, you could speak of exaltation. And this was a place where Tom and I, I don't know if we disagreed because we really got into it, didn't get into it, but I wanted to insist that no matter what visions you had of Jesus, no matter how realistic they were, you could not get to the beginning of the general resurrection as distinct from a unique, special exaltation of Jesus unless you already had the faith that the sky
eschatological era had begun and God had begun to clean up the mess of the world. But there's more for me, and that's very important. As we said earlier, since we don't have uh, Tom Wright here to speak, we're, we're trusting you to be able to speak for him a, at least a little bit. Uh, do you know how he would explain the the, the various stories, the the, uh, the the various gospels' uh, account of the resurrection? There, there are minor differences here and there. What would someone from a traditionalist camp such as Tom Wright say about those? I think what Tom did, in a way, was very wise. He didn't begin with that. In a way, that's where most of us begin. We begin by telling the stories and noticing all the differences and everything else. And, of course, it's precisely those differences that confirm for me that the people who are telling these do not consider their telling historical narratives in the same way as they're describing the crucifixion. So, let me put it this way. Tom Waits, I, I'm not certain, maybe around page 400, he speaks about the meaning of resurrection in the Jewish tradition. And I think that's very wise, by the way. He speaks of the general impression in early Christianity, sort of all over the place, beginning with Paul, for example, before any of the Gospels, faith in the resurrection. And only then, pretty late, does he come, probably following the chronology to the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, to describe those risen apparitions. And what you find as soon as you come to their description is that they're already being, uh, I'm saying this myself, being used for other purposes than simply saying, isn't it marvelous? He lives. Because most of them are telling about who's in charge. Really, the, it seems to me the most important thing that's showing up in those stories is Jesus appeared to Peter, and therefore Peter's in charge, or Jesus appeared in Galilee, so Galilee's more important than Jerusalem, or something like that. So one of the major arguments for me that these people themselves were utterly conscious is that when Matthew or Luke are using Mark as a source, they have no pr trouble filling in when Mark stops his story at the, the finding of the empty tomb, everyone who's following goes their own way, and it's almost as if everyone knows, well, I can make up this final vision of Jesus any way I want, because it is not the same sort of thing as the crucifixion. They never say Jesus was crucified in Galilee or anything like that. Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem, period. Jesus appeared. Oh, well, that is wide open. It, it is sort of as if we were all open to say, well, what, if Jesus appeared, what was the most important thing he'd want to say as his last words, as it were? And it's as if you can make it up, Fred, I can make it up, depending upon our own vision of Jesus, because that's what actually happened. They're, they're not disagreements, because that would presume for me that they wanted to agree. They are their own visions of, okay, you get to write the last vision of Jesus. What did he have to say? We have so much more to talk about, Dominic. Uh, unfortunately, we're out of time right now, so I'm going to invite you back next week, and we can, we can continue this conversation. Oh, that would be lovely, Fred. Thank you. My guest today has been John Dominic Crossan, and he is uh, a contributor to the book The Resurrection of Jesus. Uh, in this book, he dialogues with N.T. Wright about the resurrection, and it's edited by 
Robert B. Stewart. We're going to continue this conversation, as I said, next week. You're listening to WGVU. I'm Fred Stella. Thank you for joining us. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. I am ready. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. For many Christians, their faith hinges on one very specific event in history, the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday. I imagine that if it could be absolutely proved beyond doubt that there was no empty tomb, the belief systems, or rather if, if it could be, oh, let's no empty tomb. Hold on a second. Yeah, that's right. I'm sorry. Let's start over again, please. I thought I made a mistake, but I didn't. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay. Hello, I'm Fred Stella, president of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. For many Christians, their faith hinges on one very specific event in history, the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday. I imagine that if it could be absolutely proved beyond doubt that there was no empty tomb, the belief system of millions might be shattered. Conversely, if the opposite was found to be true, you might hear one collective, uh-oh, from those who did to that point doubt, as Thomas did. Well, we're not here to give definitive proof one way or the other, but it still is a fascinating conversation to have. In the new book, The Resurrection of Jesus, Two theologians, Dominic Croson and Bishop N.T. Wright, a liberal and a traditionalist, present a fascinating dialogue on the issue central to the Christian Church. Last week we started our conversation with one of its participants, Professor J.D. Crossan, and today we'll delve just a bit deeper. Let me tell you something of our guest. John Dominic Crossan is Emeritus Professor of Religious Studies at DePaul University in Chicago. His most important books are The Historical Jesus, The Life of a Mediterranean Jewish Peasant, and The Birth of Christianity. He's also been a part of the Jesus Seminar, and you've probably seen him more than a couple of times on the History Channel, any number of programs on television dealing with the life of Jesus. So, uh, Dominic Crossan, welcome again to Common Threads. Good to be with you again, Fred. You do seem to be in the um, 
producer's Rolodex, don't you? Uh, I, I don't know how many times I've seen you on television, uh, stories of Easter, story of Jesus's life. Do you enjoy that part of it all? I actually do. I, I really do. I spent my whole life, in a way, teaching uh, undergraduates, and that forced you to try and say what you want to say as simply and clearly as you can. And, of course, clarity also gets you in trouble. But I, you know, I, I really enjoy it very, very much, and I, I, I'm fascinated by the whole process of, of communication and, and the medium and everything else. So, first, yeah, I do enjoy it, I have to admit. And do you think that... Uh I know a lot of people who don't have a great experience with television, they'll say, you know, I was talking to this reporter for probably an hour and a half, and they used about 30 seconds of me. Uh, and sometimes they feel that they've been taken out of context. By and large, uh, your experience is positive in that regard? No, absolutely. The, or- the ordinary, I would say, average for me is about a three-hour interview, and I know that's going to be cut down. And so... I kind of school myself and train myself. It's actually a habit I picked up from reading somebody called Jesus, who's very good at aphorisms. <laughs> you know, blessed are the poor stops you cold. <laughs> so, and also in telling short stories. So I try to make certain that the soundbite has its own integrity in this, this sense, that I'll make it short, but if you give me an hour, I can unfold it. <laughs> Sure. So there's an integrity to the sound bites, and I think it's the integrity you find, especially in the language of Jesus. So that's what I try to imitate, to be honest with you. I've, I've spoken to people in the business of reporting and documentary work and all that, and they so appreciate people who can be concise. It just helps editing so much more. Uh, let's tell, uh, tell folks a little bit about your life. You are a former Catholic priest, correct? Right. I... I grew up in Ireland, as you can probably tell from my, my accent. I went to high school, boarding school, a classical school in Donegal from 1945 to 50. And then I went straight into a Roman Catholic medieval order, the Servites. And I was for 19 years a monk and for the last 12 years a priest, and that's what I had intended to do. And I was perfectly happy. And I still keep Dominic in the middle of my name, which has no legal standing. That's my religious name, but that's a statement that this was a part of my life that I honor and keep and cherish. But then I also found that there was a insoluble tension for me between the integrity of being a scholar, which meant that I had to say what I found. It was not a not a presumption that I was right or anything else, but the only integrity a scholar has is this is what I found, and I have to tell you about it, and you can do whatever you want about it. And being an obedient priest and with a vow of obedience, and so in 1969, I requested permission to leave dispensation from my vows, both as a priest and as a monk, and spent 26 very, very happy years also at DePaul University, which is as you may know, the largest Roman Catholic university in the country. And that basically, I so I spent my whole life within the Roman Catholic tradition. Now, in, in your transition from, from priest scholar to lay scholar, you say that you found this information, and now you have to process it. Now you have to talk about it. And you're saying that authorities would say, no, you can't say that, not, not as a Catholic priest. Is that, is that what happened? Well, yes, and it was not so much within the, my religious order, which 
um, defended me very, very much and even slightly endangered itself a little bit. It was rather a friction with the Cardinal Archbishop of Chicago, who was then Cardinal Cody. And that was really what was the, the crunch, actually. But I think, you know, it would be fair to say that I wanted also to leave and get married. But I think if they had said when I was leaving that we've changed the rules and you can now get married and stay a priest, I would have wanted dispensation for my priestly vows, really, because I wanted the freedom that I could speak as a scholar with all the ifs and buts and maybes of being scholarly without speaking officially as a priest and therefore, you know, am I speaking for the church or what am I doing? What do you see happening today in the priesthood? Do you find a number of young men who are entering the priesthood who are conflicted about the scholarly research that is out there and how to interpret that within the church or are they pretty much happy to go along with uh, with uh, magisterium and and um, the dogmas i should probably you know say that i really don't know internally i've no association with any of those young people but i i don't know who are the next generation of scholars who are who will have to be able both to to risk in scholarship, you have to you have to take risks in saying this is what I think, this is what I have found, this is what how I interpret it, and to see what happens. That's that's all you can do. It's it's not your job. Uh, let me put it this way: the, the analogy I think of is when when the children of Israel were crossing the desert, they found they needed leaders like Moses, and they found they needed scouts, and the job of the scouts was to go way up ahead and to say what they what they found up ahead. It was not their job to say what to do in a way. It was their job to come back and tell the truth. This is what we have seen. And then it was up to the leaders, as it were, to decide, and the people to decide if they would follow their leaders. But I take great consolation from that story because it is the scouts who got into the Promised Land, not the leaders. You may remember that Moses never made it into the Promised Land. Scouts did. So I'm happy to be among the scouts. The book that we're talking about uh, this half hour, and we spoke of last week, The Resurrection of Jesus, uh, edited by Robert B. Stewart, the the main content, of course, is this wonderful dialogue that you had with uh, Bishop N.T. Wright, but then uh, also included are essays by people like William Lane Craig, Craig Stevens, uh, uh, Gary Habermas, Ted Peters, etc., uh, how were these folks chosen, and do you think that this is a good lot of folks to be in, in the same book with you? Two things were put together that were not necessarily um, had to be combined. We, we, I think it was a Thursday night from memory that the dialogue took place, and that could have taken place all by itself. That was an entity to itself. But then the Evangelical Theological Society and the Evangelical Philosophical Society their regional meeting was held at the uh, seminary on the next day, Saturday, or Friday and Saturday, I think. I get my days mixed up. But they were there, so they were having their own meetings, and their talks were geared towards resurrection. Now, they, they might well, of course, have read Tom's book since it was out earlier, and they could, depending upon how fast they, 
they did their homework, read what I was going to say because I sent a copy of it down ahead of time. Not not what I was going to say, but you know what I was going to say if I had two and a half hours. Sure. <laughs> so I, I prepared it as a formal paper with footnotes, and it's exactly the same way it is in, in the book now. And so when they made their presentation, then Tom and I were asked to make sort of almost immediate comments on it, and, and those aren't in the book, of course. So the, we tried to broaden the dialogue from the two of us to the two of us in in connection with those scholars. And those are the, the main scholars who were interested in, I think, in that precise subject in terms of the debate. That's how the choice was made. Can you comment on, on some of these, uh, these essays? For instance, I'm looking at uh, uh, Quarles' uh, essay on the Gospel of Peter. Have you used the Gospel of Peter in your studies, uh, particularly on the concept of resurrection? Yes, very much, though I don't, to be quite frank with you, I don't think there was anything in the debate that was that would have been that important for that. I'm not certain I even mentioned it in my own paper. The The point is this. There is a, an excerpt, a chunk. It begins in the middle of a sentence, ends in the middle of a sentence, which has been discovered. The earliest part of it dates maybe from the beginning of the, the second or third century. And it, it starts during the trial, and it ends with the apparitions of Jesus. And the major question in scholarship, and it's a major debate, is, is there anything in this gospel that is independent of the ones that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Is it sort of like a Reader's Digest condensed version of the four of them, in which case it's interesting but not very important? Or does it contain an independent version? And I have argued as a scholar that it does contain an independent version of the, the trial of Jesus and the resurrection, and that it is independent. But, and I'm also, I've also pondered whether it's an even more primitive one, but I don't think in terms of our debate with Tom anything was raised from that that would actually get to the heart of the debate because the, the question that I really wanted to raise from my point of view in this dialogue was to say this if I was absolutely certain as a historian that the tomb was found empty and I don't mean anyone stole the body or anything like that but it was found empty and since I do accept that there were visions of Jesus that could not possibly establish resurrection for me. Now, I'm using the term, the term resurrection in the technical sense that Tom and I use it. The most it could establish for me would be exaltation. In other words, that Jesus, because he was um, the Messiah, because he was the Son of God, because he was beloved of God, had been taken up like Enoch might have been, or maybe Moses or Elijah, taken up especially from the tomb to sit, as we say, at the right hand of God in the psalm. That technical term I would use for that would be exaltation. Jesus sits at the right hand of God. I argued with Tom that in terms of his own analysis of the meaning of the term resurrection, it meant the general bodily resurrection, and to use it of Jesus, you are making the claim, and Tom would agree with this, that the general resurrection has already begun with Jesus. You're not just making a claim about Jesus. 
you're making a claim about Jesus as the start of the general bodily resurrection, and therefore you must use resurrection. That's Tom's argument. My comment is that requires an act of faith that is an act of interpretation, even if the tomb was found absolutely empty, and even if Jesus had appeared to Pilate and the Roman soldiers and everyone else in Jerusalem. The most you could get is Jesus has been taken up to God, taken up bodily, if you will. That, that would be a unique privilege of Jesus. It would not raise the theology at all that Paul insists on in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus is the first fruits of the general resurrection. It has already begun, and therefore Paul is demanding of Christians that they live in this intermediate stage between the beginning and the ending of the resurrection. Paul wants them to, to lead resurrected lives, and he's quite ready to tell them what that looks like. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and my guest today is John Dominic Crossan, and we're discussing the book, The Resurrection of Jesus. Now, if you're saying that the, the resurrection of Jesus indicated that uh, the general resurrection had already begun, uh, the general resurrection is uh, the resurrection of believers, from death, correct? Well, it is... Let me back up a little bit. What you're saying is, this goes back to about the time of, say, in round numbers, 160 years before the time of Jesus, when the Maccabean martyrs created a sort of a crisis of faith, you might say, within the Jewish understanding of God's justice. Before that, the general understanding was that when you died, you went down to Shoal, and life was over, and Shoal was not not our hell or limbo or purgatory or anything else. It was simply the grave. And then the problem that arose with the Maccabean martyrs was, where is the justice of God when you're looking at the battered, brutalized, executed body of a martyr who just died for God? Where's the justice in that? And the answer was, well, for some people, not for everyone, but for certain theologians, especially those eventually would, who would be in the Pharisaic theological tradition, there will have to be a general bodily resurrection, especially, especially for the martyrs. Well, all right, also for all the just. But that's really the heart of it. What's God going to do to vindicate the martyrs who were publicly humiliated, bodily humiliated? For many theologians, it was not adequate to say, well, the immortality of the soul. Well, no. The martyrs were not martyred in their souls, as it were. They were martyred in their bodies. So if you are, for example, in the Pharisaic tradition, as Paul was, before he ever became a Christian, he believed in the general bodily resurrection. That would be God's first order of business when he cleaned up the world, which belongs to God as far as Paul is concerned. And therefore, the resurrection... Excuse me, let me, let me just not... The exaltation of Jesus is interpreted by Paul as, oh, the general resurrection has begun, which, of course, is exactly, in Jesus' own way of saying it, the kingdom of God has begun. But it is an interpretation of something, no matter how literally you take it, even if 
you guaranteed that the Pilate and all the Roman soldiers and everyone had a vision of Jesus, that would not get you to resurrection. It could not get you beyond exaltation. It's an act of faith, that is of interpretation, which says, if you will, this exaltation means the resurrection has begun. And here's the clincher that most of us Christians don't want to talk about. That demands that we live, Paul's term would be, in Christ. And Paul has a very clear example of what life in Christ looks like. And it's not, you know, what most of us are capable of living. What about the uh, those people who were resurrected um, when Jesus was resurrected? Or, or was it when he, was, when he died on the cross? Thank you for that one, Fred, because that's, in a way, the major argument that I made with Tom, because he makes very little reference to what we call the harrowing of hell. It's the, the old English word, harrowing means the robbing of hell, or the descent into Hades. You notice in, in, in Holy Week, Jesus has a terrible Friday and sort of a very busy Sunday, and then sort of Saturday is almost like a day off. But in the Eastern tradition, especially, what Jesus has to do, of course, is go down into the abode of the dead, into Sheol, because he has to liberate the just. There is no way they could possibly think of Jesus, I'm emphasizing the word, resurrecting alone. It's just not possible. He could be exalted alone because he's so special, but to be resurrected is God's beginning of the cleanup, and there's a huge backlog of injustice. So for any Jewish Christian in the first century who's thinking about Paul, excuse me, of Jesus rising, again emphasizing that word, he cannot rise alone. So our pictures, and I kind of teased Tom a bit about the pig, picture in the front of his book, which is one of those marvelous medieval paintings of Jesus coming out of the tomb, looking rather like a, a buffed athlete coming out of, the, out of the gym. That's not the pictures you see in the Eastern tradition. I'm thinking of the Istanbul's Kora Church, Kora Museum, where you see, it's called the Anastasis, the, the resurrection, and Jesus is yanking Adam and Eve out of their tombs, out of their sarcophagi with either hand, and all the just are going up to God with him. That's resurrection. So it's precisely, precisely because of the descent into hell that I insist that it's about the justice of God And I don't see any evidence that people who believe like that went out around Jerusalem counting all the empty tombs. It's not just Jesus' tomb. It'd be the empty tombs of all the saints, of all the martyrs, of all the prophets. And that's one of the main evidence for me that they're taking this really, functionally, programmatically, vitally in terms of their lives, but not literally as we say. In your writings... Uh, when you take a, a view of of metaphor, uh, and and someone confronts you, and let's say it goes beyond the resurrection, let's say it could be the virgin birth, let's say it could be any any number of the miracles within the gospel, uh, is there usually a central point that you can find agreement on with any of your your detractors well i think there is and that's what 
I was trying to do in this dialogue with Tom, and you can, you'll have to judge for yourself, but I think it's successful. For example, uh, we could start and say, well, Jesus walks on the water. No, he didn't. Yes, he did. And we could go on forever. Nobody does. Yeah, Jesus could. This is, this is unique. This is impossible. Or you could do what I would say is, please read the entire text. It just doesn't say that Jesus walks on the water. It says that the, he sends the disciples out without him in a boat, and they're rowing like mad and getting nowhere. Jesus comes out for a walk on the waters. He's not coming out to save them. He looks like he's going to pass them right by. They have to shout out for him, get him back in the boat. Now, that shouts to me, parable dummy. <laughs> I'm a parable dummy. And the point of the parable is that when the leadership of the church, the twelve, take off in the boat without Jesus, they're going nowhere. I think that's absolutely true. I wouldn't have realized they knew that in around the 50s of the first century. I thought we only found that out recently. But it's a parable. But then again, there's a bite. So I would still say, okay, now you want to take it literally, this story about Jesus walking in the water. Take it literally. But don't don't reduce it to he walked on the water. Tell the whole story. And the point of the story then comes out the same. Jesus walked, literally now we're saying, on the waters to teach them the lesson that if he ain't in the boat, it's going down. So my argument is watch to see when, when you take it metaphorically or you take it literally, you might agree on the meaning. My point is not that it's irrelevant, whether it's literal or metaphorical. I think it's very important, for example, that the crucifixion of Jesus is literal. Very important. He was crucified by Rome, and Rome's judgment was reversed by God. So yes, I'm not saying it makes no difference, but I'm saying there are certain cases where we may not be able to ever to agree in our distinction of literal and metaphorical, not because we are post-Enlightenment and so smart, but because they were pre-Enlightenment and so open. They weren't hung up in the first century that there couldn't be miracles. And, I, and I would say that uh, this, this mini-homily that you just gave about walking on the water, I imagine you could probably hear that at the most fundamentalist church in America, uh, because I don't hear traditionalist Christians uh, just clapping and jumping up and down saying, our Jesus walks on water, isn't he great? They, yes. they also take it to, okay, what does that mean for me? Yep. I'm the apostle in the boat right now when I'm driving to work and trying to raise a family, etc., etc. So, so I, I can certainly see that and, and, and see the, the common thread that, uh, that runs between the traditionalist and the, uh, and the more uh, liberal theologian. That is what, I, what I'm testing. If, if we want simply to alienate one another, we can keep insisting on, you take it literally, I don't. And we've been at this now for 200 years, and I don't, you know, some people may be swayed one way or the other, but basically they just, it's still there. And I think in doing that, we have betrayed those people in the first century who weren't hung up as we are on post-enlightenment impossibilities or uniqueness. They heard that story. And they were smart enough to hear it the way you and I hear the good Samaritan. They got the point. They got the point right off. 
you know, you've got to cry out and get Jesus back in the boat. And by the way, the one thing I might say to the traditionalists today, remember, you weren't alone in the boat. You weren't out there by yourself in that boat. This is the boat with, with, with the 12 who represent the whole church in there. So think communally would be the only thing. Don't just think personally. But I think it is possible to get beyond the impasse we've been at now for about 200 years, where, yes, if you ask me, do I think Jesus literally walked in the waters, I'm going to tell you honestly, no. But I'm also going to say, I don't think when Mark wrote that story or told that story, he thought he did. I don't think they took it the way you and I take it, where things have to be put into literal or metaphorical. Any uh, any projects coming up? Uh, we we talked about television at the beginning of this show, and as we wrap this uh, this episode up, I'm just wondering: Do you have anything that we're going to be seeing in 2006? Well, the first thing, as you may know, is on Ash Wednesday of this year, Marcus Borg and I have a book coming out called "The Last Week." It's a day by day account of Jesus' final week in Jerusalem, and that's the most immediate um, thing, and I'm sure there will be cer- certain programs concerning that. And it's very important because it really has to do with what was Jesus doing in Jerusalem? Why did he go there? What did he intend to do? What happens when Jesus went to a capital city where there was, where conservative religion was collaborate, collaborating with imperial power, if you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it has rather obvious implications. That's the most immediate thing. Then the next thing, which is not quite, if I may now go from the sublime to the ridiculous, there's going to be a lot of discussion when um, the Da Vinci Code movie comes out, I gather. Oh, that's right. Because yes. I'm getting an awful lot of calls about Jesus and Mary Magdalene. And <laughs> I'm sure you are. Well, Dominic, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today as well as uh, last week, and I, I want to wish you the best. And uh, remind people that the book is The Resurrection of Jesus. It's a conversation between uh, our guest, John Dominic Crossan, and Bishop N.T. Wright. And it's uh, out of Fortress Press, edited by Robert Stewart. Uh, Dominic, thank you so much. Thank you, Fred. Anytime. And you're listening to WGVU. This is Common Threads. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads.